Unless otherwise indicated, Ratchet Book Club is intended for a mature audience. Viewer discretion is greatly advised. Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537 is the voicemail number for Ratchet Book Club. Um, our email address is wretchedandratchet at gmail.com. And you can contact us on Twitter at Ratchet Book Club. You can also leave a review on Podchaser, uh, Apple, Audible, I guess. I didn't even know we were on Audible. Like, oh. Okay, um, in Stitcher, as well as a lot of other places. But go to Podchaser, because if you go to Podchaser, um, you can review separate episodes or you can review the show as a whole. So, yeah, that's dope. We're halfway through with this book. And I just want to say that this book is so much, so much more than I I remembered it and it's just so much more more better <laughs> it's it's just it's written smarter and better than anything that's came after it in this genre thus far and that's sad it is because you're supposed to progress as you go forward not regress but yeah. Chapter 16. The following weekend, Boots and I drove up to visit Tony. He had grown quite tall, with a swell of muscle in his forearms and chest. Wiry, but with more than an imitation of great physical strength in the young, cleanly built body. His face, with its deep-set black eyes and aquiline nose, showed the fierceness of his African heritage, tempered by the compelling beauty of a black starless night. His broad features burst into a genuine grin of happiness. Damn, Horson, I done damn near gave up on seeing you until I got out. Without any embarrassment, he embraced me and crushed me against his broad chest. I had to blink to hold back the tears of joy that were filling up my eyes. The other inmates ignored their visit to watch us curiously. Just as suddenly as he grabbed me, he released his bear hug and swooped down on Boots. She uttered a startled yell before being swept off her feet. While swinging her back and forth as though she were a toy, he planted wet kisses all over her cheeks. Damn it, girl, his voice boomed out across the visiting area. You better stay out of the sun. If you get any blacker, I'm going to disown you as being my sister. He winked in my direction and I grinned. Knowing him as I did... 
I knew he had set it to embarrass the white people who had stopped visiting to watch us. Boots hadn't realized why he did it, so she kicked him sharply in the leg. God damn you, Boots, he swore, and then added quietly, I was just showing the white folks we were true to form. The frosty glare disappeared from her eyes and she smiled suddenly. Well, just don't use me for any more of your demonstrations. Tony put his arm around my shoulder. I don't see how you do it, Horson, he said, shaking his head at Boots. Me now? I ain't gonna have nothing but white girls. They know they place. You show me a black girl and I'll show you the most evilest, meanest, mule-headed woman God put on this earth. Glancing out of the corner of my eye, I could see that Boots was steaming. She managed to control her temper until the visiting period was up. We were just about the last ones to leave and all of Tony's friends who have visitors joined us. The lush green lawn was almost free of people. Before it had been full of running and screaming children, but now most of the lawn chairs were empty. A guard started towards us. Boots stood up. Oh yeah, Tony. Almost forgot to give you Jean's message, she said quietly. She said. Tony interrupted her. What Jean you talking about? Don't try and act clever, nigga, Boots said sharply. She asked me to tell you that she wanted you to know that she sure liked the hot head you laid on her before you left the streets. The cold, harsh words fell into silence like a void. For a moment, there was total stillness. Then Tony's friends broke out in laughter. Some of them laughed so hard they fell down and rolled over on the grass holding their stomach. Amidst the uproar, Boots stalked off towards the car. Tony stared after her in wonder. That's what I call a dirty black bitch, Horson, he muttered angrily. I watched her feline grace until she entered the Cadillac. Well, Tony, I said amused, look like you got a lot of explaining to do to your friends, baby. He grinned. That's a top-notch whore you got there, Horson. In fact, he continued soberly, there's something about her that reminds me of Jesse. Later on, as I drove back to Detroit, his words stayed in my mind. I'd take my eyes off the highway and glance in Boots' direction. After catching me looking at her a few times, she asked, You ain't mad with me about what I said about Tony, are you, Daddy? Since Tony mentioned it, I could see some similarities between Boots and my mother, though Jesse had been slightly smaller. Both were tall, dark, beautiful black women with forceful personalities. Whereas Jesse had been quiet, content to live within herself, Boots was the opposite. She enjoyed the company of others, and when she was by herself, she became miserable. I roused myself from my thoughts as her voice penetrated my daydreams. Yeah, baby, I said lightly. Just you be careful about who you say such things to, baby. Because some niggas get awful mad when people infer that they go in the bushes. This is me real quick. I'm guessing that going in the bushes means licking the pussy. I'm guessing. Like, yo... Okay, this is the 70s. Like I said, DJ Quick fucked up a lot of niggas. Probably a lot of white people too, but I don't know what y'all listened to back in 95. Uh, but I know he fucked a lot of people up in 95 when he put out that song, Don't Eat the Pussy. So that came from somewhere. Like that thought that you don't eat pussy, the thought that you don't lick the twizzy. The twizzy, that's what my grandma used to call pussy. But uh, the first time she called it pussy, I was shook. But... The fact, the thought that that 
started in 95 is absurd. It had to have come from somewhere prior to that. But I still say that rap music turned men off from providing pleasure to their women for years. And we're still recovering from that here in 2021. That's 26 years ago, fam. That's fucking crazy. She slipped her arm over the back of the seat and laughed lightly. Her skirt inched up above the knees and I put my arm in her lap. As we neared the city, I pulled her skirt up higher and caressed her smooth thighs. I let Boots out of the car in front of the restaurant connected to the hotel so she could pick up some cigarettes. I parked the car and walked slowly back. The lavish hotel lobby was crowded with people sitting around and talking. Upon entering, I stopped and looked around casually. Boots came out of the side door of the restaurant without seeing me and started towards the elevator. There were four men sitting at a table playing cards, and one of them reached out and grabbed her arm as she went by. His voice came across the room to me, clear and sharp. Hey, honey, what's your hurry? He asked. That young boy you got upstairs got too many girls to be worried about you. That's my arm you happen to have hold of, she replied coldly. Dig how cold she is, he said sarcastically. Honey, you ain't cold, and that young punk you got for a man ain't got enough sense to tell you how to respect a man. A few of the whores and pimps sitting around began to laugh. I watched Boots with amusement. I knew she had a sharp wit, and I hoped she could handle him. If she couldn't, I was pretty sure that I could. Boots' voice began to rise in anger. I don't care what you say about my man. At least you don't have to sit out here in the lobby and molest other people's women. You got it wrong, baby, the tall, thin car player said. First of all, you ain't got a man. You got a boy. And second, you have to be a man to hang out down here. Boots laughed sarcastically. You say my man's a punk, huh? Why don't you come upstairs and tell that to them ten black whores he has sleeping up there? Better yet, why not try and tell the six white whores, three bull dykers and two punks, and one gold-toothed mule that looks like you that he ain't a man? The car player's friends laughed at her retort, but I noticed he was getting mad, so I moved in. I grabbed the arm that he was holding boots with. If you don't mind, buddy, I said softly, I'd like to see my woman go on about her business. Sure, man, sure, he said, and with insolence slowly released her hand. He turned his back on me and started laughing and talking with his friends as though I didn't exist. As Boots took my arm, I could feel my temper mounting. Next time one of these tricks stop you, I said loud enough for the whole lobby to hear. You find out how much money the sissy is spending, baby. And if he ain't spending no money, don't waste any time with him. And then I added as an afterthought. You know how some freaks are, baby. They just come by holding a whore's hand. When the elevator stopped, I turned around before entering it, and I saw that two of the car player's friends were holding him in his seat. We entered our apartment and hugged up, laughing our heads off. The smell of burning hair was strong in the air. I could hear the chatter of many feminine voices coming from the kitchen. I sighed with resignation. Moving from my flat hadn't done any good. The girls just found an excuse to leave a dress or a coat whenever they visited my penthouse, and before I knew it, they had just about moved in. Boots uttered my very thoughts. Oh, Horson, every time I enter this suite, I'm overwhelmed by its beauty. You should be, I answered, 
For $30 a day, it should have a swimming pool in the front room. Yeah, $30 a day for a penthouse is fucking berserk. Man, golly, the nerve. I walked into the lavishly furnished living room. The deep blood red wall-to-wall carpet felt plush beneath the $85 lizard skin shoes I was wearing. The carpet alone seemed to trump in my arrival as an up-and-coming young pimp. Horson? I turned as boots glided to a stop before entering the bedroom. What, baby? I'm going to change into something more comfortable, she said. How about twisting me up a joint? Okay, pothead, I said, grinning. We done already smoked a matchbox since this morning, woman. But just for you, I'm going to smoke some more. Oh, baby, you sure treat me good, don't you? She said gaily. She dipped down in her bra and came up with a small brown envelope. I took the weed from her. As she turned towards the bedroom door, I playfully slapped her on her white ass. Ouch, horsing? I sat down on the white sofa and placed the envelope of marijuana on the coffee table in front of me. My eyes roamed the room. The architectural design was typical of middle-class hotel suites around the country. However, whoever did the decor knew his business. Everything was ultra-modern. My fingers savored the smooth texture of the fine material covering the sofa as my mind received vivid impressions from an abstract oil painting on the wall in front of me. I rolled a stick of weed for myself. Relaxing against the soft cushions, I enjoyed the mellow feeling of contentment that flowed through my body. I realized that, with a house full of women, I should value this stolen time. To be alone for just a few moments gave me a tranquility that was indeed rare. I had never before seen a wall painted black, that is, not in a hotel. It complemented the blood red carpet. Turning my head, I took in the enamel white wall with its louvered door through which Boots had walked. At the far end of the room, set between the flat black wall and a mild orange colored one, was a Nero reclining couch. Placed between this and another like it, both upholstered in leopard skin, set a large palm plant that appeared to be growing out of the carpet. By a large window, behind the sofa I sat on, stood a floor-to-ceiling cylindrical lamp. It seemed to be made of frosted glass, with small curly cue designs etched into a surface. Looking up, I felt a strange sensation as the zebra patterns on the ceiling gave an illusion of melting together. To me... This was a hip joint. I stood up and walked over to the Grundy stereo sitting below the abstract painting. As I turned on the switch, the sounds of violins filled the room. Although I'm strictly a blues and jazz fiend, the mellow sound of strings in that room seemed appropriate, so I left it on. Horson, what the hell is on the box? Boots asked me from the open bedroom door. It's music, woman. You think the whole world listens to nothing but Jimmy Smith and Little Richard? No, Daddy. I was just asking. I walked back to the sofa and, taking some zigzag papers from my coat pocket, sat down and opened the envelope, pouring its contents of dark green reefer onto the long glass-topped coffee table. Boots walked over and said in a sexual voice, Lace me up, Daddy. Turn around. I stood up and made a bow in the two silk strings hanging from the back of a transparent, hemmed in mink, pink silk negligee. Boots, call down to room service and have them send up a fifth of Johnny Walker Red and six bottles of beer.
As she walked towards the telephone, she reminded me what a top-notch horse should look like. The mink that ran around the hem of her negligee bounced softly from her half-exposed buttocks. They were large for her size, but without flaws. Her dark thighs and legs were second to none I had seen, and she drew tricks like bees to honey. After reseating myself, I began to roll a few joints. And a bucket of ice, I called after her. She stuck her tongue out at me, but relayed my message to the desk. After hanging up, she came over and lowered herself to the carpet in front of me. I lit up a joint and handed it to her. Now be good, honey, I said and pried her inquiring hands loose. Daddy, I'm always good, she said and then started doing what I knew she would do. I took the joint from her hand and leaned back on the sofa. Smiling up at me, she unzipped my pants and began fumbling around for the separation of my shorts. Why don't you just ask me to take them off, I asked. It's more fun this way, she said, and after finally getting a grip on what she was after, she began squeezing and pulling gently, then lowered her head. I felt the warmth of her mouth move up from my thighs and settle deep in my stomach. Each movement of her tongue sent frantic sensations up and down my spine until I didn't think I could take it anymore. Through the pounding of my heart and the roaring in my mind, I heard a metallic sound. The door opened and Diane walked in. God damn, she yelled. Every time I look around, that bitch got a yard of dick down her throat. Diane pulled off her wig and walked across the room. Damn, I'm tired, she said as she sat down. She stared at Boots for a few minutes. Damn, bitch. Ain't you got no shame, you cum-loving whore? Boots stopped and looked around. Why, tramp? You jealous? You damn right I'm jealous, dick-loving whore. I've been out catching tricks all day and you sit up here with your black ass sucking all the life out of horsing. Well, don't worry, little white girl. You'll get your chance. Diane capped. I know damn well I'll get my chance if you ever turn the meat loose, black ass cow. I stood up and straightened up my clothes. Diane looked down at Boots and removed a large roll of bills from her bra and laid them on the coffee table. With her last remark aimed at Boots, she said, With tricks outside riding bumper to bumper, all this sorry bitch could catch would be a cold. She turned on her heels and walked into the bedroom. Boots got up off the floor and sat down on the couch. Daddy, I was thinking you might have some trouble out of that fella that was down in the lobby. I stared at her silently for a few moments before answering. The only thing that nigga better do, baby, is try and get along with me, because I ain't letting nobody put no static in my game. The telephone rang and Boots answered it. I had made it a point never to answer the phone whenever there was a woman in the house, because sometimes tricks called, and if a man answered, they would hang up. Boots waved the receiver towards me. It's for you, Daddy. I took the phone out of her hand. Who is it, baby? It sounds like Dot. I frowned at the receiver. Dot was one of my most recent cops. Ever since I had her, she always seemed to be getting into difficulties. What is it, honey? I asked into the phone. Her voice came over the line, shaking and scared. Horson, I'm, I'm sorry about not being on the track, but my brother seen me standing on the corner and made me go home with him. I shouted into the phone. Bitch, you mean to tell me that your brother's the reason why my trap money's gonna be shitty? 
But Horson, he seen me on the corner and made me go home with him. I snarled. Tell me the real, whore. I don't hear no baby screaming in the background, so I know you ain't over at this house now. So just what is the reason, the real deal, bitch? Just why are you presenting this weak shit to me? Is your money funny, whore? Or have you been out yarding somewhere? She started to cry into the receiver. Daddy, I'm not lying. I had to climb out the bedroom window to get away. Bitch, I exploded. I should make you go back to his house and walk out the front door. Dumbass bitch. Don't you realize that when you're out on the corner, you're representing me? And what you do reflects on me? Now, how do you think I'm going to feel if people get to talking about my woman had to climb out of a window because her brother didn't like what she was doing? But Horson, didn't nobody see me come out the window? Shut up, bitch, and listen. It ain't the idea that anybody saw you come out the window. It's the fact that I know you came out the window. My whore had to climb out of some goddamn window because her winehead brother took her home. I interrupted her reply. Just shut up and listen. I ought to kill you, bitch, but I ain't. I'm going to give you another chance. Now, I want you to get your ass back up on that track and get my money right. If your brother should come back up there looking for you, don't hide. Just tell him that you up there taking care of my business, and I don't want him blocking my game. I continued. If he should take you home anyway, don't climb out no windows, bitch. Just walk out the front door. Now, if you don't think you can handle that, I'll take you back over to your brother's house and I'll talk to him myself. Before she could hang up mad, I smoothed her feelings so she wouldn't go to work mad. Listen, honey, all young girls make mistakes when they first go to work, so don't feel bad about it. This all goes along with the making of a good whore. If horn was easy, every woman you would see would be out there in the streets with her legs in the air. But it takes a certain kind of woman to be a good whore, so most of them back up from it because they be lazy and it just ain't in them. She was quiet for a moment. Daddy, I'm going to be a good whore, ain't I? Sure you are, baby, but it just takes hard work. Now don't forget, I don't want to see you getting in your father's car if he ain't spending no money. You understand? She laughed. Horson, you wouldn't want me to trickle my daddy, would you? Not really, honey, I grinned, then added. Unless he was going to spend a show enough big buck, then I think he could handle it. She was still laughing when I hung the phone up. Boots picked up a joint from the coffee table. Pimp hard, daddy. Pimp hard. I laughed coldly. Yeah, baby. I sat and looked at my watch. You can start getting ready for the track too, Miss Fine. Diane came into the room with the bellboy who was bringing up the whiskey and beer I had ordered earlier. She was wearing a pair of very tiny panties and a see-through bra. The bellboy, who was about 40, couldn't keep his eyes off her. The hallway door opened and a troop of my women came in. They were all scantily dressed, and the bellboy didn't know which one to look at. His eyes were going back and forth like pinballs. The girls, noticing his excitement, began to harass him. Diane stepped up and took control. Honey, you saw me first, didn't you? So why are you making all them odds at them sluts? Don't you think I can handle your problem, honey? He shook his head up and down dumbly, and she took his hand and steered him into the bedroom. In less than five minutes, he was back out of the bedroom looking around sheepishly. Diane escorted him to the door. Be sure to ask me the next time you come up, big fella. Here, he said sweetly. As soon as he left, Diane pulled a $10 bill out of her bra and twisted her hips provocatively as she crossed the living room. You see, girls, what a good whore gets? He paid for the drink that y'all all trying to consume, and plus, he tipped me this for being so sweet.
The girls laughed and talked and gossiped until I interrupted. Well, ladies, the party's over, and I know you've all had your kicks, but the time has come for you to all catch some tricks. I settled back on the couch with Diane in my arms and watched him prepare to go to work. It still took better than an hour before they had all dressed and departed, leaving just Diane and me in the suite. Chapter 17 Diane helped me out of my car, and the early morning chill wind helped to sober me up. She had to come down to Carl's after the hour club and waited patiently until I finished gambling and drinking. The sun was just coming out as we staggered down the street. By the time we reached the hotel, I had got control of myself enough that I could walk without any help. The lobby was deserted this time of the morning, except for the night clerk and a couple of fags. When the elevator went up, I had to fight to hold down the hamburgers I had eaten earlier. The sound of loud music reached us before we could even get the apartment door open. Sounds like somebody else is up besides us, Daddy, she said. I pushed open the door and the sound of loud jazz blasted me in the face. For a few moments, the women's faces in the room were a blur, but I finally managed to focus in on them and what I saw came as a surprise. Boots and a tall white blonde were dancing together. They were both about the same height and they were swaying to the beat of the music with an intimacy that suggested a strange relationship between two women. Boots broke away when I entered. Diane poured coal oil on the fire. Don't stop belly rubbing just because we showed up on the set. It ain't what you think it is, bitch, Boots said. Horson, this is Jerry, she explained. I met her downstairs and she wanted to know who you were, so I told her to come on up and meet you. Oh yeah, I also told her that you didn't have any girlfriends, only whores, so she brung her clothes. Oh yeah, she added. She belonged to that damn nigga that is always downstairs bothering us whenever we come in. You know, the one you had some words for yesterday. So, out of spite, I let her stay. Jerry was 24 years old and the first white girl I'd ever had. Not really having any connections for a white girl, I allowed her to lay around the pad for about a week before deciding to let Boots take her down to my whorehouse on Hastings. The color tricks went mad over her. It lasted exactly one week before the police caved the door in, taking all the whores in the house to jail. I knew my whorehouse was busted before the police came out the door with the girls. I joined the crowd like a fool and watched the police lead the cursing women in the police cars. Before I could lead the crowd, two tall white vice officers walked up from the rear of the crowd and arrested me. Another group of my girls were in the crowd and they caused one hell of a commotion before some more police busted them. They put me in the car with three of my girls from the crowd. I yelled out the car window to some friends. One of y'all get in touch with Big Mama and have her get the bondsman on the case. This was the beginning of the end. From here on out, my luck changed. I have been enjoying the sweet without the bitter. Now my turn to come and start paying dues. Everybody made bond except the white girl. They held her as a witness for the state. The rest of my girls are fined $50 for loitering in the house of ill repute, while they charged me with pandering and boots with aiding and abetting. My bond was set at $5,000, while Boots was set at $3,000. We both came out on bond at the same time. The lawyer socked it to me for a big fee, and my bankroll began to dwindle at a shocking pace. It turned out that this was Jerry's first arrest. Because of this, the police contacted her parents out in Bloomsville Township. When they found out that their precious daughter had been staying with a black man, they went through the roof of the police station. 
With the police browbeating her and her parents screaming at her, she became a cooperating witness for the police. Some shit don't never change. I'm just going to put that out there and leave it alone. We stayed out on bond for two months before going back to court and being found guilty. One week later, we went back to court for sentencing. My lawyer promised me probation because of my age. Don't worry about a thing, Mr. Jones, he said. How could a 17-year-old man possibly corrupt a 24-year-old woman? If anything, he told me jokingly, the judge should give her 90 days for teaching a young boy bad habits. So the day of my sentence, I went to court snug as a bug. Between me and my lawyer, we had a tacit agreement. Boots was in a cross. I figured she would get about six months, but she could stand it better than me. The first one the judge passed sentence on was Boots. He looked down from his bench at us as though we had crawled out from under a rock. Damn, he gave her three to five years in the Detroit Women's House of Correction. Before he could announce mine, I knew the cross had gone down with me caught in the middle. He said something about my behavior and also mentioned the cut and I had done on the girl's face last year. Then he finally lowered the bomb. He sentenced me to from six to seven years. Instead of probation, I had got prison. And I hadn't known that white girl two weeks. I was in a state of shock when they led me from the courtroom. I stayed in the county jail for two weeks, waiting to be shipped out to Jackson Prison. This was to make me be glad to get to prison, because could nothing be worse than a county jail. We had to sleep on mattresses on the floor because there wasn't enough bunks to go around. The food was just enough to get by on, and the wheat didn't get theirs. Bowls were fought over just because some men wanted another piece of meat. The weak, the scared, the timid made it a point to give their meat to one of the stronger inmates. This way, they had somebody to protect them on the ward. Not only because of the food, but because rape was a way of life when the lights went out at night. On my first day in the county jail, I had three fights before the night was over. After that, the wild young boys in the war gathered around me and we started a wolf pack. If one fought, we all fought. In less than one week, we ruled the ward. My day finally arrived. With two other prisoners, we were handcuffed together and loaded into the rear seat of an auto. Our hands were cuffed tightly behind us and leg irons were firmly secured to our ankles. One long chain went through each man's leg iron, securing all three of us together. In the two-hour drive to the prison, I watched the passing scenery with unseeing eyes. When the car pulled up in front of the gate, I stared at the huge wall surrounding the penitentiary. I watched men in blue uniforms trimming the grass and hedges in front of the institution. There were no guards visible around them. I would learn later that these were trustees, and it would be many years before I would reach this status. Like many black men before me, I realized that it was ridiculous to worry about that which you couldn't change. I was confronted with the problem of making my mind accept the fact that I would be behind these forbidding gray walls until my sentence was served. It is typical of a man's nature that he can adjust to almost any environment. Prison life was no different. The only large problem was the absence of any females. Some men even adjusted this. I met men who had been sentenced to life imprisonment, and they had adapted to this abnormal condition. Many of these men went so far as to abstain from indulging in relationships with the various homosexuals who abounded in prison, 
while others quickly accepted this is the new way of life and fell in love with one of the boy girls. After we got out of the car, they marched us inside. Here we undressed, leaving our civilian clothes behind and putting on the prison blues. Many of us will wear these clothes and similar ones for many years before we would have another chance to wear civilian clothes. From there, we were marched to 7 Block, a place in Jackson Prison that was used for quarantine. We were isolated from the rest of the prison population. We stayed in quarantine for one to three months, waiting to find out where we would be sent. I stared around the large brick building with trepidation. It was four floors high, and on each gallery there were single cells. As I followed my guard up to the third gallery, I noticed most of the cells had men in them. The men whistled at us as we passed. Some of them made smooching sounds with their lips. At first, it was unbelievable to me. The thought of spending the next few years locked up in one of these cages was beyond my comprehension. The guard stopped and opened one of the cages with his key. He waited impatiently until I walked in. Then he slammed the door behind me. As I sat down in the small cot in the cell, I realized for the first time what prison meant. This was the big house, and I had made it at the ripe old age of 17. As I lay there on my bunk staring up at the ceiling, I counted on my fingers how many years I would have to do. Since it was then 1957, I figured the earliest I can get out would be sometime in the early 60s. Since there was no getting around it and I would have to serve the time, I made my mind up at that moment that I wouldn't take any shit from anyone. I knew there were only two types of people in prison. Either you were a man or a punk, or too old to have to worry about it. Since I was so young, I knew I would have to worry about it, so I made up my mind to be one of the pushers and not the one that got pushed. The first weeks in prison, I spent receiving blood tests and shots. After that, we were given lectures on prison life and constant warnings not to borrow anything from other inmates. We were let out of our cells to eat three times a day, then put back in and locked up. The only time we were allowed out was when we were on call or taking a shower at night. Once a week, we were allowed to see a movie. Then they broke all the doors and we were let out to go downstairs and sit in the dining room. We had to remain silent at all times during this outing. But the many young boys quickly learned how to talk without their lips moving. At the movie, when the lights went out, it became a whorehouse. Punks went to work with their hands and lips. The men who stood to the sides because of lack of seating would have sissies stand in front of them with slits in the seams of their pants. Before the morning chow line would begin, all the slit pants would have been repaired. After I had been in quarantine a month, my first problem came up. While we were lined up to take a shower, the man behind me patted me on my ass. I knew it wasn't an accident because a light giggle went up and down the line. I ignored it. He did it again. I waited until after I had taken my shower and when we lined up to march back to our cells, I got behind the joker who thought he was doing something clever. He was an older man who had done time before. At night, I had heard him talking across the cells. I was next door to him. He had made a few remarks earlier about me, but I had ignored him. Now, he was pushing his luck. As we walked down the galley, I rolled my towel up so I could use it to choke with. It was still bulky, but I knew it would damn well serve my purpose. I caught him from behind and put my knee in his back. With both hands, I twisted the towel tighter and tighter. When the guards came running up and started to force me to turn him loose, in a last attempt to finish off what I had started, I tried to kick him off the third galley. For fighting, I was put in the hole. 
I spent two weeks in there, and when I came out, I was assigned to the main prison. They thought I was too violent natured to be allowed to spend my time around boys my age. Once inside the population, away from the restrictions of quarantine, I began to settle down. The everyday routine of prison life became acceptable. The few problems I had because of my age were quickly settled. The rumor that I would not only fight, but kill if necessary gave the dogs room for thought. There were too many soft marks inside the wall for them to go out of their way from me. And then I was considered a dog myself. The days ran into months, then the months into years. Boots and I corresponded with each other all the way through her prison bid. After her release, it was another story. When she sent me $10, I sent it back. In the letter I wrote her, I told her that if that was all she could send, she needed it more than I did. When I had come to prison, I had brought one grand with me. Since then, Tony and Big Mama had sent money off and on. My prison account had over $2,000 in it after I had been in prison four years. After Boots released from prison, I received $300 from her in one year. With the arrival of Ape in prison, I found out that Boots had chose Tony. Ooh, damn. Really? Oh. Oh, God. I mean, on the one hand, familiarity. But on the other hand, you don't, that's his brother. Like, damn near. Like, you don't choose your boy's brother. You don't choose your, 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 your pimp's brother. And, and he shouldn't have chose her. Like, how did that work? I'm curious. Like, I really want to figure that one out. And I'm hoping that they talk about that when he gets out. So, yeah. Chapter 18. With the passing of Christmas, my year was coming up. The parole board had given flop, but that didn't make any difference. I now have four months to go for discharge. Tony had come up to visit me twice in the past year. But each time he came, I refused to go into the visiting room. In my mind, I knew there was nothing he could tell me. He had my woman, and that was that. I left my jewelry and all my clothes for him when I'd gone into prison. That hadn't been enough. He had taken my woman. I didn't want the bitch back. If anything, I wanted to kill her. She could have chose anyone other than my only friend. I wasn't the only one who was mad at him. Big Mama, before she died, had borrowed boots from her trick house. And some of my old friends who had just left the streets told me she wouldn't have anything to do with Tony since he had caught boots. After Big Mama's death, I started to run the yard until I would almost fall out, trying to forget and forgive, but it didn't do any good. There was a burning hate inside of me that no amount of running and training would relieve. I practiced punching on the big bag until I could hit with either hand with devastating effect. An old con I had become close to asked me one day why I trained so hard. After listening to me explain, he laughed. Listen, Horson, he said. You got too much on the ball, boy, to go out and resort to violence. If you're going to be a player, you got to act like one. If Tony stole your woman, fighting him about it ain't the answer. Always remember this. What goes around comes around. You just wait and have patience. You'll get your chance to play on him, and when it comes, make sure you do it good and smooth. I listened to what he said, and acceptance came slow, but it came. Prison had taught me patience, and with calm endurance, I knew that one day my chance would come to fix Boots and Tony. Some of my bitterness vanished, so when they called my number to report to the front office for a visit, I hesitated for only a moment. 
Since I didn't have any kin folks, it couldn't be nobody else but Tony. When Big Mama passed away, a lawyer came to inform me that she had left $5,000 in his care for me, so there was no reason for him to come and see me again. Our business was finished until I was released. Leaving the gymnasium, I cut across the yard and reached the hall office. 30 minutes later, I was standing in the visiting room waiting for my visit. When the door opened, I recognized my visitor at once. It had been over six years since I had seen her. Before, she had been a cute young girl. Now, she was a very attractive young lady. I opened my arms and she stepped into him as though it was the most natural lap between us. When she tried to speak, I smothered her words with another kiss. I held her by the shoulders and looked down at her with genuine pleasure. Janet, how good the gods have been to you. Surely you know you become a creation of art, I said graciously. Her laughter was soft and gentle. <laughs> My, Horson, what have they been teaching you in this place? It was like the opening of a floodgate. Given the opportunity to talk to a female after six years release a torrent of words. My vocabulary had become quite extraordinary for a boy from the slums because of my eagerness to read. I had just about read everything in the prison library, plus completely finished all the courses in the prison school. For the past two years, I had been taking college courses, and it had become noticeable in my writing and speech. We stared at each other across the visiting table. I'm really proud of you, Horson, she said. You've got so big since you've been here. And then she smiled at me. And you've never seen such a smile. Why, your shoulders will make two of me. She was just about right. She wasn't exactly tiny, but she was a thin, small-built woman with delicate features, while her skin had a smooth texture that reminded me of a fine, dark mahogany. After I finally ran down, I looked at her in embarrassment. Damn, Janet. Here I've been telling you about my schoolwork and all that junk and haven't even complimented you on all the records you keep putting out. Why, I lie awake at night sometimes just to hear them play some of your songs. She smiled, please. It ain't really nothing. We just been kind of lucky. We got a good songwriter and the breaks have been coming our way. She remained silent for a moment, then continued. Tony asked me to give you a message for him, she said. Her eyes scanned my face for any signs of anger before she continued. He said to tell you that he thought you were too much of a player not to recognize game when it went down, and that it was a part of the dues that all players had to pay. That nigga got nerve? Yeah, maybe it's a part of the game. Yeah, okay, when New York did it, okay, I could see why that would happen. New York popped game. It worked. He was older. He had what they needed. He was able to pull him. Tony waited until Horson went to jail. That's like you saying you crossed me up after you saw I broke my ankle. Nigga, you know I can't move. And I don't mean you broke my ankle like you crossed me up. I mean I broke my ankle like, nigga, somebody hit me in my ankle with a bat. Because that's the only way you're going to cross me up. You know what you did, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> However disagreeable what she said may have been to me, I had no intention of allowing her to see I was irritated. She studied my expression closely. To avoid an awkward situation, I began to give her a snow job with plenty of bullshit on top. You know, Janet, 
Have you ever stopped and tried to figure out why so many of us from our environment, boys that is, don't try to be anything else but pimps, parasites, and just plain dope fiends? Her mouth was wide open now, and I knew I had her. She stared at me in wonder, and I could see her brain working a mile a minute. Many people think we're sick, I continued, but it's not really a sickness. As I now see it, it's not out of the eccentricity of a single individual, but the sickness of the times itself, the neurosis of our generation. Not because we're worthless individuals either, rather because we're the product of the slums. Faced with poverty on one side and ignorance on the other, we exploit those who are nearest us. Her eyes were big now. She was so enthused over my words that I wanted to reach over and fill her leg to see if she had had a climax. Oh, Horson, this prison term has really done you good. I wouldn't have thought that I would ever hear you talk like this. What you're saying really makes sense. This is the first time I've been able to try out my new vocabulary on anybody other than cons and guards. And I could see what some of the smarter prisoners have said was true. If you use good diction, you could kind of be out of honey. She was so naive that I couldn't help but amuse myself a little more. Yes, I do have a much broader outlook on life than I had when I entered this institution. But now, back to my original line of reasoning. Now don't misunderstand me, Janet. This is not an attempt to disguise or palliate this widespread sickness that pervades the black ghettos, but rather an attempt to try and understand why. Why is it that so many youth of our generation have no higher goal in life than to be pimps? Oh, Horson, I'm so proud of you. She hesitated for a moment, then went on. When I first came to this visiting room, I decided not to tell you something. But now, after listening to you talk, I feel as if I could tell you without being frightened of what you'll say. The smile that I forced was fictitious. The last thing I wanted to do was smile. I had a premonition that whatever she had to say would remove the amiable mood between us and leave a breach that would be hard to repair. She hadn't seemed to notice because she announced, You heard of the pop singer Johnny Ringo, haven't you? Why, Johnny Ringo! Ain't he the nigga from Tombstone? Yes. Yes, he is. He's not the nigga who was Johnny Tyler, though. Johnny Tyler was played by Billy Bob Thornton. Y'all didn't know that because he looks differently in that movie. He was the nigga who got punked out in the casino. And then he got punked out again when he ran up on him with a gun. I can't wait to review that shit for hindsight. I stared at her coldly. You talking about the blue-eyed soul? The white boy with the number one record out right now? Her eyes lit up. Uh-huh, that's him. We haven't announced it yet, but we're supposed to be engaged in... She froze in mid-sentence. My stare was so chilling it paralyzed her. There was a burning rage inside me that defied description. I'd rather see you on your deathbed first, bitch. Horson, I didn't know you were prejudiced, she said in a shocked voice. Prejudice hell, bitch. Every time one of you black bitches get a little bit of recognition with a little money to go with it, black men ain't good enough for you. Then you ask us why we want a pimp. That's all one of you funky bitches is good for to be used. Ooh, this nigga's hurt. He big hurt. Also, it seemed to have flipped from the 50s and now where all of a sudden Kanye West you know Kanye West called it you know you get some money you leave the ass for a white girl and black dudes just like I like white bitches because they don't give me no flack or no step back nothing like that 
Uh-huh. Yeah, sure. If if you feel like you need to have dominion over somebody, then you shouldn't be with anybody at all. But you definitely shouldn't be with a black woman because shit. <laughs> My voice dropped low and it was full of scorn. And to think, bitch, that you had enough nerve to tell me once about finishing school so I could be something. Also, in his defense, I mean, what he's saying is fucked up, but what she did is fucked up. Why would you come to visit this nigga in jail? After not seeing him for like six years. And the last thing you had told him before you saw him in this perp in this moment, the last thing you had told him was that if he put his life together, you'd fall in love with him and you'd marry him. Why would you go see this nigga in jail to tell him that you're marrying a white boy? Yeah, nah, that's a good question. She started to speak, but I interrupted. Shut up. You once told me that you wouldn't have a pimp. Well, dumb bitch, just what you think you're getting engaged to. It's for goddamn sure he wouldn't look at your black ass if you didn't have all that money in the bank from your records. I continued, not giving her a chance to speak. I just wish it was possible I could see you when he took you home to introduce you to his people. They look at you like you just crawled out from under some rock. If it wasn't for your money, bitch, they'd probably ask you to empty the goddamn ashtrays. Right, this is 1957. No, is it? He spent four years in prison, so now it's 61. It still ain't all gravity. It ain't even close to good out there. Damn, she about to have a fucked up reality. There were tears in her eyes as she stared at me. I thought you would change, Horson, but I see a better education didn't really help you. You're still rotten underneath it all. I grabbed her arm and almost pulled her across the table. Don't no black man want to see no black woman get played on, Tramp. So if that's rotten, I'm rotten clean through. With the back of my hand, I wiped my lips. I have ten times more respect for a whore than what I have for you, Tramp. At least they getting paid when they associate with a peckerwood. But you, pig, you don't have no excuse. And to think you had the audacity to offer your lips to me. Again, I wiped my lips with the back of my hand. Then I leaned across the table and spit in her face. I pushed back my chair and got up. The guard had seen my action was bearing down on me. Get me out of here, Peckerwood, I growled at him. As I walked towards the door, I could hear her sobs behind me. Before I left the visiting room, the last sight I saw was Janet with her head down the table crying. For my behavior in the visiting room, I was given seven days in the hole. Upon my release from the hole, I ran into my buddy, the old con. He shook his head in disgust. Man, oh man, he began. Horson, I don't really know what to say other than you are a damn fool. This whole prison is talking about you. The brothers who were in the visiting room recognized Janet Wilson, boy, and they say you really spit in that girl's face. The bitch had it coming, I stated harshly. What do you think I should have did after the bitch told me she was going to marry a honky? Kiss her? He continued to shake his head at my ignorance. So what, fool? Do you think it helped your cause any by spitting in her face? He began to lecture me as if though I was a child. First of all, the girl had to like you or she wouldn't have wasted her time coming up here. Second, ignorant ass nigga, the girl has big stuff. 
I mean big stuff. Her cash is so long that the whiteys are playing for it. So what do you do? Instead of smoothing her feelings out and talking her into changing her mind, you spit in her face like some damn kid. And to think I thought you might one day be a player. No wonder your partner stole your main woman. You ain't got no style about you. It occurred to me to knock him down, but in my heart, I knew what he was telling me was true. I gritted my teeth and listened. He studied me solemnly. Here, everybody in the prison's dreaming of the opportunity to present itself to you. All they're hoping for is the opportunity to just meet a woman in her position. And here you is with one in love with you and you don't know how to handle it. His scorn was blistering. The only reason I took an interest in you when you came to this prison is because me and your mama used to be good friends. But if I had known you was this much of a fool, I never would have spoke to you. He removed a cigarette and lit it. Anytime a nigga and whitey are shooting at the same woman and she black, the whitey has to have big money to win. In your case, sucker, the honky ain't got big stuff. He just another poor ass singer with one record out. For several moments, he remained silent. I stared at him and suddenly it dawned on me that he was taking this personally. Looking at it from his viewpoint, I could understand his anger. For him, such a woman would be a precious possession. An opportunity of a lifetime. Naturally, he resented my blunder. To him, it seemed as if I was tossing away something he had searched for his whole life without ever attaining. With me, it was different. I was 20 years younger than him. And I didn't have a doubt in my mind that I wouldn't get over big when I got out of prison. There wasn't any one bitch in this world that I felt I had to bend over backwards for. What the other niggas in the penitentiary thought about me didn't mean nothing. I was going home in less than four months. What they didn't realize is that the bitch got away lucky. If we had been anywhere else, I would have done much more than spit on her. I grinned. I began to picture myself peeing on top of her head. The old con scowled at me. I don't know what you find a grin about. I guess you think you done something cute? Well, you sure in the hell didn't, young ass, bitch ass mother. That's as far as you got. I caught him upside the head with a hard right hook. Then put two sharp left hooks in his stomach that folded him up. Before he could get himself together, I hit him on the chin with a straight right hand that laid him out cold. For fighting in the yard, they put me in isolation until I was discharged. That was alright with me, because I knew if they put me back in population, I was going to have a lot of trouble out of that kind. He wouldn't forget the sneak punch I'd hit him with no time soon. And then to get knocked out by a younger con like me, even though I fought on the boxing squad, wouldn't make matters any easier. He would have to retaliate, or his name would become Pussy. That's the way it was in prison. Either a man fought and proved he was a man, or he played the passive role and got fucked. To lose a fight in prison didn't mean anything. To lose without fighting back spelled trouble. That is saying in prison that all cons heard sooner or later. Fuck, fight, or wash clothes. If you wash clothes to get out of fighting, you would just about end up being fucked before the week was out. Sodomy rape was a way of life in the penitentiary, not something that occurred on occasion. If you were weak or showed fear, you became fair game for the dogs. What they couldn't do with fear they would accomplish with force. That's how some of the prisons get a steady supply of punks. The dogs turn them out. By rape if necessary. By persuasion when possible. Is there any wonder then that, when I left prison, 
I was more an animal than a man. My nickname while I was in prison shows more than words could do. I feel like that's the first typo that I've seen in this book. I mean, I know it's the first typo I've seen in this book, but I'm not sure if it's an actual typo. But it would read better if it said, My nickname while I was in prison showed more than words could to what kind of man I was becoming. Boss dog. I mean, I understand. I, I wouldn't pee on her, and I definitely wouldn't spit in her face, but I understand the frustration. Like I said, he held her on such a pedestal. Like, there were only three women in his life that he actually adored or seemed to enjoy time around. And that was his mom, Jesse, Boots, and Janet. Boots did him dirty. And we'll probably find out why in later chapters. His mama passed on. Rest in peace. Janet, though, like I said, the last time he saw Janet, she was leaving him with empty promises. And there's nothing worse than empty promises forgotten. And she forgot what she had said, I guess. Or she didn't hold true because life went on for her. Oh, no. 916-633-1537. Uh, the email address is ratchet and ratchet at gmail.com. Uh, the Twitter name is Ratchet Book Club. Um, leave a review at Podchaser. Uh, the cool thing about that is you can leave a review for a separate episode or for the show as a whole. Uh, leave a review Apple Podcasts. Leave a review at Stitcher. You know, wherever you listen, if it allows you to leave a review. You could become a Patreon of. Uh, the show by going to patreon.com slash single simulcast and if you want to buy me a book or help out with buying books you can go to buy me a coffee slash sscast thank you so much for your time i greatly do appreciate it i'll holler at y'all later y'all be good peace and outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know my now that you slipped.